bum bum bottom 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 bum
And, you know, I, I had enjoyed her first arc on the book, but there wasn't a lot to do with Arthur and Mira uh, in that first narrative. But now we're just two issues into the Mother, Star- Mother Shark storyline and some major Arthur-Mira revelations have occurred. Oh, they have. Uh, I tried to convince Lisa that we should do an audible and just focus on those two singles, but she said nay. We promised our listeners to do this book, to do, what is this called again? Uh, sea, sea of, of Storms. Storms. And uh, I don't want to mislead our... our uh, our peeps. Yeah, and it's probably not fair to do an episode on just two episodes or two issues and not really be able to talk about a full arc. Uh, but I would encourage uh, folks to check out what Kelly Sudakonic is doing. And I do want to talk about it, but let's let's do something unique. Let's do something special, Lisa. Okay. Let's hold a mini conversation on issues 48 and 49 of Aquaman as a stinger to this episode. What do you think about that? That was actually my idea before we started recording and you're trying to take take credit for it and I and well, uh, it was my brilliant That's what plan. husbands do, Lisa. <laughs> Uh, So there you go. That's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about Sea of Storms this ep and then stay through the credits, stay through the ending theme song. And at the very end, in a stinger, we'll have a a, a short chat about issues 48 and 49 of the the Taconic book. How does that sound? Sounds great. Spoilers. Our minds were blown, lightly blown. (laughs) We were gently and sweetly blown. I think it's significant for Arthur and Mira anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Arthur's mind was certainly blown. <laughs> well, uh, it, hopefully, uh, we'll talk about this later. Got to hold those thoughts. Hold those thoughts, Lisa, because right now we're talking about Aquaman Sea of Storms. Jeff Parker joins the book to fill in after Jeff Johns' departure. Parker got his start in the comic book industry as an artist working at Malibu Comics in the 1990s. I was never a Malibu guy, so I didn't really encounter Parker until he became known as a writer on comics like Agents of Atlas and Batman 66. Now, my absolute favorite Jeff Parker comic has to be Future Quest, which is this Justice League-type book featuring the classic Hanna-Barbera characters like Johnny Quest, Space Ghost, Harvey Birdman, the Herculoids, and and those guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds nuts. It is nuts. It's illustrated by Doc Shaner, and it's just a beautiful fun time with comics. I love it, love it, love it, love it. So Jeff Johns left Aquaman in 2014 because his life was stretched a little too thin. He was working on the monthly Justice League book. He had just started the Forever Evil miniseries. And yeah, uh, he has all that usual madness dealing as the DC Comics president and chief creative officer. So he had to abandon Aquaman and Jeff Parker took over. Now, Parker told the USA Today at the time that he wanted to bring Aquaman back to basics, which really means shark punching. He yeah. wanted a lot of shark punching in and the we, comic. And we get some. And we get some, yeah. <laughs> uh, Parker didn't stay long on Aquaman. He wrote issues 26 through 40 of the New 52 iteration, about a year's worth of comic book work. After that came Cullen Bunn, an arc that seems universally reviled, but I haven't read it and uh, I, I, I may not. I don't know. Well, we'll see. I do want to go back and complete all of the new 52 read some of the Jeff John stuff that I haven't done quite yet. And that means I'll, I'll get to the Cullen bun and form my own opinion. Don't just listen to the internet, Brad. 
don't do it. Uh, after Cullen Bunn came Dan Abnett, and we've already talked about his rebirth uh book, The Drowning. I've read everything by Dan Abnett. I like a lot about it. I dislike some of it. And now we have Kelly Sudokonik, and I'm I'm really enjoying her stuff. Uh, she's a little divisive amongst the Aquaman community. We've heard from you. We appreciate your point of view. But I got to say, her writing is damn good, and I love all this old gods, Lovecraftian stuff that she's dealing with right now. I think that it's about time for Aquaman to have a fresh direction, because from the little bit we've read and what I've read on the side, everything goes back to the same, you know, two or three things. Like, Aquaman, he doesn't want to be king, but he doesn't not want to be king. Right, 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 right. So we need some progress in that storyline at the very least. And I think Kelly Sudokonik is going to give us that. But now it's time to say goodbye to Arthur and Mira on this show. Um, and maybe even more importantly, Lisa, it's time to say goodbye to Dr. Sue Johnson yes. and her monogamy pushing love sets. Finally, <laughs> Lisa, you have not hid your thoughts, your negative thoughts regarding Dr. Sue Johnson. Well, this month, um, but you know, we've committed to her relationship advice. So how are we going to use her point of view in discussing sea of storms? Yes, it is none too soon to say goodbye to Dr. Sue Johnson and her 2013 book, Love Sense, The Revolutionary Science of Romantic Relationships. Well, I do think that it's valuable to use what has been learned through attachment theory and neuroscience to learn how we function in relationships and what we can do as human beings to get the most out of them. I don't think that those ideas indisputably prove that monogamy is the supreme and natural function of the human animal as Dr. Sue Johnson would want (laughs) us to believe. From my little psychologist armchair, I think that the human animal is seeking to make as many securely attached relationships as possible. And I'm not necessarily meaning romantic relationships, but also family members, friends, colleagues, We've evolved empathy so we can care for our children and so that we can care for each other and Mm -hmm. protect each other. So the more connections, the better. And whether that means that you are like sexually exclusive to one person or not, I I don't know. I don't. You have not changed your tune, basically, is what you're saying. (laughs) No, and having read now this entire book, she has not convinced you otherwise. The the final section really like if. If, as she presented in the introduction of this book, her thesis was, I'm going to use these theories to prove that monogamy is the one and only way for people to be happy, like, you'd think that that would come up in this final section in her conclusion, but it weirdly does not. You know what's interesting about that is it's a lot like what you were saying regarding the motivation of Arthur Curry, right? Yeah. I don't want to be king. I don't want to be king. I got to, you know, I got to help the land, but I, I, yeah, I guess I have to help Atlantis too. We've read four stories so far from four different writers and none of them have been able to progress the character beyond that motivation. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is because of editorial, you know, edict, or maybe it's because. Maybe it's because if you resolve that question, whether Arthur Curry wants to be the King of Atlantis or he wants to be the lighthouse guard of the surface, like what do you have left of that character? 
Right. There's right, just right. no there there. And I think it's the same like you're saying with Sue Johnson and her little monogamist theory, monogamy theory. Like she doesn't come back to it in her conclusion because I don't think there's that An there's answer. any there there. And mm. she's just kind of a, an old lady who's read some books and uh, wants to use this opportunity to tell other people how to live. But what Stan Tatkin did when we talked about his uh, theories way back when, when we were discussing our LGBTQ month, right? And he's come up a lot because he also uses attachment theory. And, and he uh, prides himself on scientific theory. Dr. Sue Johnson, it does not seem like she goes back to scientific theory. She quotes a lot of studies, but she doesn't um, challenge them using scientific theory, right? Well, in the introduction of Wired for Love, Dr. Stan Tatkin's book, he he starts his book by saying, like, these, these are some methods that I found that attachment theory has found that couple counselors have found helps in relationships to create secure attachment. And it doesn't have anything really to do with um, your sexual expression. Like it doesn't matter if you're gay, if you're straight, if you're non-binary, if you are asexual, like connection is connection is connection. And this is how we as human beings make it. And Dr. Sue Johnson is placing puritanical, uh, you know, religion on top of it, basically. Exactly. So she's in her introduction, she says, because we have these, um, because we have these mechanisms in our system to create secure attachment, that proves that by design, we are made to make a secure attachment with one person and and me and I think probably Dr. Stan Cat can go like well the ev- the evidence doesn't really prove that the evidence proves that we want to empathize not just with one person but with everybody yeah and just because you found some beavers and some swans that <laughs> mate for life doesn't mean that's necessarily transmittable to humans yeah yeah but I feel like by the end of this episode, we are going to separate, Lisa. No! Like you are shattering monogamy for I us. I am not, because, <laughs> <laughs> because monogamy works for us. It's yeah. part of our commitment to each other. And, I'm just teasing you. And it was part of when we were dating. We both were pretty clear that we were looking for a monogamous relationship. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, back on track. Back on track. So... If Dr. Sue Johnson does not use the final part of her book to talk about monogamy, what does she use it to talk about? Dr. Sue uses the final part of her book entitled Part 4, The New Science Applied, to talk about how society is going to hell in a handbasket <laughs> as we deprioritize the need for human connection for technological advancement. Yeah, that's our problem. Yep. I, you know, <laughs> like, after I tell you about the different points she made, like... I don't know. I kind of think maybe she has a point. I mean, if she's talking about kids at the restaurant, not talking to the parents, but instead losing themselves into the void of their screen, sure, that's a problem. But uh, I don't know if that's society's main problem. Yeah, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Okay. She points to several alarm bells, such as a 30% increase in the use of anti-anxiety drugs, the increase of cosmetic procedures such as Botox that immobilize the face so that uh, emotions are obscured and stifled, 
and increased work hours impeding family time as harbingers of society spinning out of control. Mm. She sees modern society as falling into a technology trap, using computers and robots as poor substitutes for human connection, like your kid at the restaurant uh-huh, with an uh-huh, iPad. Uh-huh, uh-huh. She doesn't just mean our smartphones and our iPads, though. She's also talking about therapeutic robots like Paro, the robot seal programmed to make eye contact with lonely elderly people (laughs) instead of having them hang out with maybe actual young people or actual human beings. Also, Roxy, which is spelled with three X's Mm. in the middle, which is a sex robot that is fully customizable so that it can have warm skin, pulsating organs, and programmed conversations about soccer and sex. How much does this cost? I don't know. I didn't didn't Google it because I was afraid of a, like, it's like, you know, you search for one sex robot and suddenly all your cookies are just sending you, like, the weirdest Uh, ads. I'm there already, Lisa. (laughs) She advocates to have empathy taught to children with programs like Mary Gordon's Root of Empathy are Roe, R-O-E, which has been taught in Canada and Australia. Roe brings mothers and babies into schools so that children can observe how they bond and interact so that they can be taught emotional literacy, which has reportedly dropped bully behavior in the participating schools by 61%. And this is a in contrast to the increase in bully behavior of 67%. Mm. So it more or less brought things back down to the norm, I think, is how I interpreted that. She also advocates that cities become communities again. So Dr. Sue Johnson actually grew up in England and her parents were the pub owners. So she got to see the same 130 or so Uh, locals who frequented the pub all of the time. And she really does miss that sense of community. She would probably enjoy Amnesty Bay. I think that she would. And Atlantis. Atlantis is like England underwater. Yep. (laughs) Super inbred and weird. (laughs) My mom's British. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I forgot. Throughout our travels with Aquaman and Mira, we've seen attempts by Aquaman to increase empathy between the people of Atlantis and the people of the surface to varying success. Aquaman is a hero of great empathy, not just to Atlanteans and surface dwellers, but to the fish he communicates with. But most of the time, he can't break through people's us versus them mentality. Not even Mira's half Mm -hmm, the time. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to me... What we see throughout this Sea of Storms book is Aquaman trying to get other people, including himself, to see others in a different light. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I agree. Yeah. So I think in our discussion of this volume, we should definitely touch on those instances where Aquaman and Mira either gain empathy or spread empathy right, to okay. others. All right. Well, let's get into it. Sea of Storms. This is trade paperback number five of the new 52 series and collects issues 26 through 31, as well as Aquaman Annual number two and issue 32 of Swamp Thing, written by Charles Sewell. Uh, polling art duties on the book is another stable of talents. We're talking uh, Paul Pelletier. I would pronounce that Pelletier. Pelletier. I'm going to butcher all of these names. Jesus Saez? 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 Yavel Goucher? 
I I would I would say yeah maybe Goucher Goucher uh, Nitho Diaz and Alvaro Martinez Hey I got those last two pretty good <laughs> uh, Now here's the basic plot of Sea of Storms stolen directly from Goodreads Oh my Good luck Goodreads uh, They s- skip a lot <laughs> The Earth's crust is grinding to life releasing deadly volcanoes and bizarre creatures So humanity's first instinct is to blame Atlantis and as the play pull apart, the pressures of ruling a kingdom under siege are weighing on Aquaman and Mira as well. Plus, a high school reunion, Hercules, the giant born, and Swamp Thing. I I find this uh, plot synopsis a little, like, straight up inaccurate, but <laughs> at the same time, like... I say brave attempt. A brave attempt. There's a lot going on in Sea of Storms. And there is a complete lack of overarching theme from the first page to the last page. Okay. It's All right. nutty. So where do we want to start? I think we should start right when Aquaman and Mira have just gotten control of this lava fissure that has cropped up for mysterious reasons. Mira in this scene is being so passive aggressive. Uh It's ridiculous. So one of the Atlanteans come up and kneel before her to sincerely thank her for saving them from this fissure. And she replies, don't bother. I know I'm as welcome in Atlantis as an oil slick. I'm still going to help you when you're in danger. So she's being all like, like, don't even bother thanking She's me. She's got that whole Zabellian complex still. Exactly. And then Aquaman is looking around and he's like, oh, I guess we'll have to take this to the Royal Forum. Like, when's our next meeting? And she goes, <laughs> I don't want to be that girl, but it's actually right now. And I told you about it twice yeah, today. Yeah. And at the Royal Forum, when they finally show up and everybody's just been killing time, chatting, you know, doing stupid small talk, they're they're conducting this forum inside a dry room, which Arthur has constructed to give the Atlanteans a sense of, of surface empathy, right? Exactly, exactly. So um, one of the ways to create empathy is to go through the motions of somebody you want to empathize with. So I can see kind of where Aquaman is coming from. But it alienates the Atlanteans, and he doesn't learn anything from this moment because later on in The Drowning, which we saw last week, he does the exact same thing on the surface world when he builds his embassy. He creates these water rooms, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he's a he's a man with a lot of uh, tricks, tired old <laughs> tricks that he can't get past. Yeah, and the Royal Forum just takes it as like, why are you trying to turn us into surface dwellers? Yeah, yeah, they hate him for it. Yeah, and they can't help but feel deprioritized when he's late to their meetings all of the time. This is habitual behavior. Well, and But every writer who has tackled Aquaman since Jeff Johns, Johns, Abnett, Parker, probably Cullen Bunn, uh, probably Kelly Sue DeConnick at some point. This dynamic has played out. This We've seen this scene many times within just a few years. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's also this extension of, like, Aquaman has spread himself too thin. Like, he's still trying to be part of the Amnesty Bay community. He's part of the Justice League. He is... The ruler of Atlantis, and when something crops up, like a mysterious lava fissure, he doesn't 
leave it to the responder teams that they have in Atlantis to take care of emergencies such as this, he feels like he feels the need to go and do that himself. Yeah, yeah, it's the Justice League complex, <laughs> right? And so, so I think that the Royal Forum is feeling a little bit like uh, he's avoiding them, and they would not be wrong. Well, no, because, I mean, this is—I mean, I say it's the Justice League complex, but it's all just a, an extension of his um, anxiety around being a king, right? Of royal blood, right? But I do think that he is. Through his neglect of the Royal Forum, I really do think that he is damaging the sense of community. Yeah, and his relationship with Mira. Right, and and it's going to breed, you know, uh, treason. Yeah, so, okay, Aquaman comes in barking orders, but Koa and the rest are ready to leave. You guys were late. We're going to jet. And Aquaman's like, ah, I'm sorry. Uh, if you want to go, you can go. I know you have other obligations. Yeah, but, like, Mira is like, I want to know what happened in the, like, well, all of you guys were talking about Aquaman without me. Like, what, what was said in this meeting? And they're kind of, like, shuffling around about it. How come it? they don't have this room bugged? <laughs> That's making this. Maybe because it's just too damp for like a microphone. Maybe that's why we don't have any Atlantean podcasts. Mm. Um, But uh, Mira is trying to get info out of people. So finally, this uh, woman, Marga, comes forward and she says to Aquaman, they still feel like you're still more concerned about the surface world instead of this world, which is something that Aquaman and Mira kind of already know. But then she also talks tosses in that many say that just because Mira is his consort doesn't make her their queen. Ouch. Yeah, Brutal. big time. And, th- and then she also mentions that they wish... Arthur would wear his crown. Yeah, that's not going to help Mira's passive aggressiveness. No, I don't think so. (laughs) I can understand why she's a little bit defensive. Anyway, this conversation is interrupted by another emergency uh, and that there is an aquatic threat heading towards the surface world. So Aquaman and Mira snap into action and Aquaman requests that Mira do a pressure launch. So she's going to use her water powers to like- Project him. Towards the surface, kind of like what's that thing that Wolverine does? The uh, speedball, uh, fastball special. Yeah, the fastball special. So this is uh, Mira's fastball. You don't want to see Wolverine's speedball special. Oh no! (laughs) So, um, and from Mira, we get continued sarcasm. So he's like, "Okay, can you aim like twelve degrees north?" And she goes like. How good do you think my sense of direction is? So she replies sassily. And then uh, and Aquaman is like, don't overexert yourself. You know, be careful. And she replies, I'm fine. Just take a flying position like your friend with the cape. Ouch. Yeah. So um, turns out the aquatic threat is the Kraken, a mythical protector of the Atlantean realm. Not spelled like the Kraken, but yeah. is basically the Kraken. Exactly. I li- he's like got like a spaghetti tongue. Yeah, I love I love love Krakens of all kinds. Yeah, yeah, Brad really really does. I'm a big Kraken guy. Turns out that um, at the beginning of this issue, a mysterious scientific unit had been doing some archaeological digs on this big carcass they assumed was dead, unleashed the Kraken, and now it's going to Reykjavik. To eat a lot of people. (laughs) 
and Aquaman being Aquaman, he wants to communicate with the fishes. He wants to mind meld with the Kraken. Mira is like, no, don't you do that. It's too powerful. It's too weird. You don't understand what you're going to see. And he does it anyway because he's Arthur and he does what he wants. And of course, she's right. It is too much for him. It's actually a lot like those scenes where in the movie Slither, do you remember the movie Slither yeah. that James Gunn directed way before Guardians of the Galaxy, where they would get the slug in the mouth and they would bite down on the slug and you would see the past I of that not, slug creature? I had not sli- seen Slither. I was the, thinking about the movie with uh, Kevin Bacon with the things that live under the sand. Tremors? I was thinking of Tremors. No, that does not happen <laughs> in Tremors. It does happen in Slither. And so Arthur communicates with the Kraken and he sees this history of this beast that he cannot understand. It is too powerful powerful for him. He can't push it back with his mind. Mira is right. He meets up with her and he says, look, you are right. I had to do what I had to do. Uh, continuing the cycle of self-defensiveness that is Arthur Curry. Right. And, you know, this is all happening over comms. So mm-hmm. they can't really make eye contact and and figure each other out, and their default mode seems to be like sarcasm and snapping. <laughs> Do you find that this Arthur and Mira is different than the Arthur and Mira that Abnett have created or Johns has written? I think that they are, they have walls up between each other. In a way that they don't in the other volumes that we've read? Right. If you're looking at the continuation of The Trench and then this book— and then the drowning, I feel like there has been some distance created between them, between the trench and this. And There's a regression in their relationship, it feels like. Right, where maybe they've gotten to know each other's peeves a little better, and they're trying to head them off at the pass through this defensive, like, don't say I told you so... Uh, don't tell me how to do my job behavior. And there are a whole mess load of comics that we have skipped between the trench and this point. There's the whole business with the others. There's the whole business with Ocean Master. There's been another massive clash for the crown of Atlantis between Arthur and his half-brother. So, you know, I, I, I don't remember what really went down between Mira and Arthur in that point, but it does feel like, yeah, that that they are not on the rocks, but, yeah, to your point, there is a tension there. Well, if we think about our Sue Johnson conversation from the last episode, they're in a time of transition, and times of transitions are always dangerous, rocky points for a relationship. And you can apply that to comic books, transitioning from one writer to the next. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Okay. So aqua communication is impossible with the Kraken. That means he's got to use his trusty trident, crack into the shell of its skull, and penetrate the brain, kill the beast. Right. So the Kraken is finally felled, and this is an opportunity for Aquaman and Mira to finally be in the same place and download a little bit about what's happened, this experience. So Aquaman goes to the shore and Mira joins him and Mira opens up with some soothing behavior. She knows that Aquaman is a super empathetic person and he never wants to end a life, a sea life, if he doesn't have to. So she opens up the conversation with like, I'm sorry that it had to go down that way. And it was a judgment call that you had to make and and it just, you did what you had to do. And Aquaman is like, yeah, 
you know. Uh, yeah. The people of Reykjavik are pretty happy. Yeah, and he does get a little, like, he has a nice exchange with one of the fishermen thanking him, yeah. and we know how important that affirmation is to yeah. Aquaman. Yeah. He yeah. just yeah. wants to be loved. Yeah. Especially because he knows that Neil and the other soldiers are not going to be happy that he just killed this uh, mythical protector of the Atlantean right. people. And, and so Arthur now has a vacation spot in Reykjavik, you know, if he's, uh, you know, bogged down in the royal nonsense of Atlantis and he can't handle the racism of Amnesty Bay, he can at least go to Reykjavik. Yeah. <laughs> and at the end of that conversation between Mira and Aquaman, she does something that I find kind of surprising. And, and she's like, I think we could use a break. Let's head back to Maine mm-hmm, for a mm-hmm. little while. Yeah, to Amnesty Bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I think that that's, like, we know that she's not the most accustomed to being on land, but that is also the place where their relationship began. That's where their spark of love began. So well, maybe- she is developing uh, an appreciation slash affection for the surface, especially when she does go to Atlantis and she does receive all this shade from the Atlanteans because she's Zebelian. Oh, yeah, that's you true. You know, the, the ocean for her is not the warm place that it once was either. She really is not getting any acceptance from anywhere. No, no, no. But she doesn't complain about it like her man does. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, okay. Now, here's the most exciting aspect of the entire book, right? After the Battle of the Kraken, we have the high school reunion at Amnesty Bay. And Arthur does not want to go to it because he's like me. I don't want to see those people that I knew as a child. What You know, they, they were never kind to me. Uh, I want nothing to do with them now that I've hit the mother load of being a really rad Justice League member. Um, so I'm not going to do it. I'm going to back out. And this is, again, where Mira comes in and she sort of supports his surface side and says, no, I think... I think it's good that you go back to the the reunion. And also, I want to see what it was like for young Arthur. She is obsessed with knowing the child Arthur. And we saw that in Johns's run with the trench. And now we get to see that really fulfilled here at the high school reunion, where she just goes full on squee over his relationships with these kids who are now adults. Well, when Aquaman, when Arthur is explaining to Mira what his trepidation is to going back to his high school reunion, he distills it down to one specific memory. And that's the memory of him first experiencing that mind meld with a sea creature. And we saw an iteration of this exact moment in Mira Tidebreaker. We did. Yeah, in a flashback sequence. No, that one didn't have any other kids in it, did it? No, it did not, no. Yeah, so this whale has been beached about a 10-year-old, 11-year-old Arthur is there with it's hard a bunch to tell. of his... He, the drawing makes him look like he's like about five and a half years <laughs> yeah, old. He's yeah, very childlike yeah. in this art. But I'm guessing by the behavior, he could be maybe 12. And he and his bunch of his peers see this beached whale. All of the kids want to get the whale back in the water. And uh, one kid goes, is like, my dad has a tugboat. We can use the tugboat. He goes off. And then, uh, then Arthur, when... He is helping the kids push the whale back into the water. He accidentally starts mind melding with the whale and he sees the whale's entire history and he's getting that real strong empathy moment. But the moment is ended suddenly when he gets this wave of pain 
from the whale. And on the other side, one of the other children named Spencer is carving his name into the body of this whale. And Arthur, full of rage, clocks this kid, punches him right into a coma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he Deserved feels like, it. <laughs> deserved it. But <laughs> Arthur does feel like that was the seminal moment where all of the other kids became afraid of him. Yeah. He was like, the kid who put Spencer in the hospital. You know, it's like that scene in the Spider-Man movie with Andrew Garfield where Parker is going up against Flash and uh, he, he now has his powers and suddenly he can just slam dunk the hell out of Flash Thompson. Yeah. Every superhero origin story, when it when it is revisited through their teen years, there is that moment where they first display their super strength, immediately regret it, and have to start this whole system of lies and white lies to show the world that, no, 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 I'm not that guy you saw that one afternoon. I'm really just a nerdy dude. In Into the Spider-Verse, it's the scene where Miles Morales gets his hand stuck in Gwen Stacy's hair. Yep, 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 yep. It's it's Spider-Man movies all have it. They all have it. But when Arthur eventually does go to his high school reunion, he is pretty warmly received. Like there are there is one guy, Kevin, who seems pretty nervous, and we find out why later. <laughs> but mostly kids remember, hey, that time when my father's boat was in danger. But because that that's he's a celebrity now, right? Yeah. It's like Tom Cruise going back to his class, you know? It, he, like he's a Justice League member. Your buddy, the the guy you sort of knew when you're in high school, he's now hanging out with Superman. So even though you only sort of knew him in high school, he's now your best friend in your memory of high school. Even that kid who grew up to be the head of the cannery, Spencer, <laughs> brags about the time that Aquaman knocked his lights out. <laughs> yeah. So So it turns out to be really sweet. Also, my favorite part is when uh, Mira is pumping Erica, the police officer, and also a peer of Arthur's from the high school. She starts pumping him for pumping her for information about his high school girlfriends. Yeah, and she gets it. And she gets it. And it turns out that even as a kid, Arthur was a super gentleman who would give super sweet, thoughtful gifts of beautiful seashells to his girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful scene. And when Erica finally asks him, like, when I brought up the reunion, you seemed kind of reticent to come. Like, what what made you finally come? Arthur gives Mira full credit. and She said, made me. <laughs> and says that she made me realize that I was scared. Yeah, he puts a go. nice spin on it. <laughs> he was scared to face his past and... What a shock. And he was worried about, he like we talk about with Brene Brown, the story that you're telling yourself. Mm -hmm. The story that he was telling himself was that the other kids at school were scared of him and saw him as this freak, where the reality is all of those kids grew up to be adults who lived locally and they loved living vicariously through him and his adventures. Nobody in Amnesty Bay becomes a superhero. Nobody in Amnesty Bay leaves Amnesty Bay. That's right. Meanwhile, during all this high school schmoozing, Dr. Evans has stolen Arthur's trident and has used it to open up a gateway to a Grecian hell? 
where the giant born have spilled out from mythology, including Hercules? Yeah, how awkward. <laughs> Lock up your magical key weapons, Arthur. You can't just leave your magic stick lying around. <laughs> yeah, but he did. And His excuse is so cute, too. It's like, I'm living Amnesty Bay. Like, nobody will even touch my stick. Uh, everyone wants to touch your stick, Arthur. Everyone. Were you not at that high school reunion? <laughs> the giant born are on the loose, and they're mad. They've been trapped in this hell for centuries, and now they want to bring their rage to planet Earth. And this is kind of like the most Jeff Parkian storyline, where he goes, we've got this Aquaman. Let's, let's you know, we, we've got the Kraken. Let's bring all of world mythology into this character's realm. I think Parker wants to transform Arthur into Thor in some ways. I think that's definitely true. And when he, when Arthur finally catches up with his trident and he and Evans are trapped in this portal with all of these creatures, one of the creatures points at Arthur's belt and goes like, hey, this is the king of Atlantis, which proves Arthur's point that he doesn't need to wear a crown because <laughs> the belt totally counts. Dumb. Uh, <laughs> I got to say, like, on the surface, I was really excited by the idea of introducing this level of mythology into the Aquaman title. But it's actually probably my least favorite segment of Sea of Storms. Nothing really comes of it. It's just a bunch of fighting and the... Um, Creatures, they all get loose, but they're not really interacting but, with but, people at but all. the Harpy character, who is sort of the... Uh, Seleana. Yeah, she's this, this the figurehead, the spearhead of this invasion, mm -hmm. is all exposition, and she's just not fun to read. Right. And meanwhile, under the sea, there's like this mysterious algae bloom and it threatens to kill off all sea life. So Arthur is put in charge of the giant born uh, infestation. Yeah. And then uh Mirror well, has to go garden. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I gotta say, I'm much more interested in what Mira's doing. But then when Mira finds out what's happening, she passes the job off to Arthur, and that's when all the Swamp Thing stuff happens. Is there anything that we need to really address about the giant born in Hercules? I guess the most interesting thing to come of that is Aquaman calls on one of his fellow Justice League members, Wonder Woman to help with this situation, considering that her half-brother Hercules was also in that portal, right, and he's right. been driven crazy by all of the giant born. And at some point, Celiana puts them under some kind of spell that makes them turn on each other and express their worst fears about each other to each other. So Diana is like, Aquaman, you are a man divided and you care more about the stuff that's under the water. She's just there to highlight the same old story that they've been arguing over since the New 52 started. Surface versus Atlantis. Yeah, but... Pick a side. <laughs> but, you know, once they come out of the spell, they're like, I'm sorry about what I said when I was under a spell. And they just kind of go their separate ways. And um, Mira ends up helping Wonder Woman with another nest of giant born. That's a little random, it but that's but I love that pairing. Like I, how often do Mira and Wonder Woman get to hang out and have a comic book together? So it's really fun to to see that dynamic, but again, I also feel like it's a little bit of a missed opportunity that it doesn't really amount to much. It doesn't amount to much, though I like the fact that they have like kind of complementary powers. Like they're 
like Diana has the super strength. Mira can control the water. So together they are additive. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, isn't that just what the, the, the same dynamic between Arthur and Mira? You know, Arthur's got the super strength plus the fish talking. Yeah, but uh, Diana has a way better rack. <laughs> Agreed. Okay. Uh, I, all I'm saying is I would like to read more Wonder Woman and Mira comics. And I think we can do that in the alternate universe stories of bombshells, which oh, I just ordered and they are on their way. Okay, cool. What about Aquaman and Swamp Thing comics? Well, like Swamp Thing is straight up one of the greatest comic book characters ever created. And if we were going to put, you know, Swamp Thing on a tier with Aquaman, Swamp Thing's hanging out on Mount Everest and Aquaman's, you know, trying to get up to him. And I think this Jeff Parker Aquaman comic proves that point. He's nowhere near as interesting or as cool as Swamp Thing as portrayed here. Of course, it's also a tie-in with the Charles Sewell Swamp Thing series at the time. So when it jumps over to Swamp Thing issue number 32, Charles Sewell really has the last word on their relationship. And it's clear that Charles Sewell prefers Swamp Thing to Aquaman like Brad does. You could take Aquaman out of this little story and literally nothing would change. So there's this algae bloom... It seems to be sentient. It's created a pocket universe outside of the green. The green is where all plant life exists. But Aquaman doesn't know that. No, so the first no. thing he does is he goes to Swamp Thing and he's all mad and punching on him. And, Swamp and he gets Thing- all those manatees to eat Swamp Thing. Yeah, rude, by the way, <laughs> rude. Um, get manatees to eat first, ask questions later. And then we find out like, oh, the pocket universe thing that you just mentioned. And then it's like, you know, like, oh, sorry, it was a misunderstanding Swamp Thing. We good? And yeah. Swamp Thing, like, we good. Yeah, we good. I just took care of it. Yeah. It's it's a very bizarre ending to Sea of Storms. In fact, as you said at the start of this episode, Sea of Storms is not really one narrative. It's three stories, right? It's the Kraken story. Actually, I guess it's four. It's the Kraken story. It's the high school reunion. It's the giant born with Hercules. Uh, and then it's Swamp Thing. Right. And, you know, that's a lot for one comic book. And none of it really feels like it gets its due. Yeah. Nothing ultimately amounts to anything. And that's kind of how when you're reading comic books by volume, it can feel sometimes because when you get a volume, you're like, okay, I'm going to read this arc. But this this book doesn't feel like an arc. It feels like a trans- transition between Because it things. is, yeah. right? So Jeff Johns had his you know run on the character, redefines Aquaman for the new 52 and the modern era of comic book uh, readers. Uh, and then Rebirth happens and Abnett is allowed to explore Arthur and Mira's relationship for many years. And it becomes this Game of Thrones-ian uh, uh, saga, this 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 civil war within Atlantis, which you didn't get a chance to read. But guess what? I know you wouldn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and then Kelly Sudakonic gets to come in and sort of revamp it post-Aquaman the movie. And... You know, what Jeff Parker has and what Cullen Bunn have is basically just a treading water moment. Yeah, this is just 
a trench, so to speak, <laughs> between two different bigger arcs. Yeah, so it's a little bit of a bummer, and it's even more of a bummer that we're ending our series on Sea of Storms again. Whoops. Whoops. Sorry, listeners. Yeah. All right. Uh, what else? Anything else we need to address in this arc before we wrap things up, Lisa? I think not. There's not a lot of satisfying... Relationship stuff. Relationship stuff, in, particularly in this last the these last two issues. All right. So let's talk about what we can pull from Sea of Storms, apply to our own relationship, uh, and and I guess ultimately where we come down on this monogamy thing, although I think we know. I think looking at this particular book, looking at Sea of Storms, and analyzing Aquaman and Mira's bickering defensive behavior, if I was to give them advice of what to do in their relationship, it would be find some time to get away and go back to open communication because when they're at work, when they're doing their duties of being the monarchs of Atlantis and being Justice League members and working together professionally, they're in these situations where they're anticipating fights and going like, I know that Arthur's not going to see eye to eye with me on this, or I see that Mira is going to want to say this to me, and I'm just going to cut it off at the pass, Mm -hmm. like, instead of, because I don't have time to have an argument with my spouse while we're at work. Mm -hmm. But when they were able to go back to Maine, and Mira was anticipating him not wanting to go to go to his reunion, like, they were able to talk about it and come to a place where I think they were both better off. I have a lot of thoughts. Okay, you go. (laughs) First off, at the end of last week's episode, I asked you if you thought that Arthur and Mira would make it based on what you read in The Drowning and what you had read in The Trench. And you said yes. I would position that question to you again with this. Like, do they feel like a couple that'll make it just based on what you're seeing here in Sea of Storms? To me, I don't see that their relationship is satisfying them in any way when they're at work. Yeah. When they're at the high school reunion, they're having fun together. But, you know, there's a whole other book, a whole other podcast series where we can talk about how, you know, you shouldn't um, uh, pee in the company pool or whatever the phrase is. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Put your cream in your office coffee. (laughs) What's the cliche phrase I'm trying to think of? um, It's don't. Uh, I'm trying to think of the Atlantean word word for it. Don't carp where you eat. Yeah, don't carp where you eat. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, like like they maybe they shouldn't be fighting alongside each other right now. Yeah, definitely. They they need to find their footing. Like that's definitely true. <laughs> but they are also dealing with their own individual identity crises. Yeah, we've talked a lot about Arthur's identity crises, but Mira is also as a Zebelian being a monarch at Atlantis. So what I'll say about that is in the Abnet run when it goes to the civil war that is occurring in Atlantis. 
Mira's um, place in the universe is resolved in some way. And we'll see that in where she is in the Kelly Sudaconic run too, uh, which we'll talk about in the stinger, I guess. But ultimately my frustration with this relationship is not on her side. It is on Arthur's side. And I think it is a problem with what John set up in the new 52 and this idea of I'm, not a king. I don't want to be a king. I know my blood says I'm a king. I know that Atlantis wants me to be the king, but I don't want to be a king. I want to be a surface dweller. I want to be a Justice League member. I want to prove my worth to the humans in America. And until that is resolved, I don't think I don't think anything can happen with this relationship. I think that uh, writers spend a lot of time writing will they won't they relationships and i i think it's really hard to write a this is a functioning couple who are moving forward with their lives relationship at least that's the impression that i get sure but what about the idea of arthur's in-betweenness is that actually essential to his character i would hope not because i'm tired of reading but dc seems to think that it is right and i can't help but look at Arthur and want Namor the Submariner from Marvel Comics, right? What's great about Namor is that he hates the surface. He's pretty resolute about where he wants to be. And he does whatever he has to to make sure that his people survive and thrive. And that allows Namor to comment on all the societal ills of our world on land. And that's what's appealing to me about Namor. This in-between wishy-washiness of Arthur, I find very annoying. What about the in-between wishy-washiness of Mira? Only, I would say that, I don't actually know if I'd say she is wishy-washy. I think she is less communicative with her true feelings To Arthur. I think she knows what she wants, but because of her love, what we talked about in the last episode, because she so passionately adores Arthur, she stuffs a lot of her true feelings. But when she lets those out, she is the superior character. Yeah. Right? Super, super true. After this month's worth of conversations around Arthur and Mira, I come away liking Aquaman less and Mira more. And who knows how I would actually feel about that if we read comics pre-2011, right? Yeah. We've only read Aquaman stories since New 52. And it's it, it, and I would like to go back and read some more classic Aquaman comics. The problem there is that the Mira character is just not interesting at all in those books from what little I have read. So maybe I am doing a disservice by not exploring the Peter David run more. Um, there's that Search for Mira comic I really wanted to get into and I haven't done yet with, uh, with art from Jim Aparo. We all love Jim Aparo on this podcast. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm really frustrated with post-2011 Aquaman, I guess. Enough about your relationship with Aquaman. What about <laughs> our relationship with each other? You and me? Yeah. And how this applies to us? Yeah. So you and I work together a lot. Yes. We do this podcast together. We, we spent do- all day doing this one episode. I know <laughs> you're only at like the 55-minute mark, listeners, but guess what? We put many hours into this episode. That's right. And we do another podcast together, and we do a lot of writing together and trips together. And there are times where you have to... Stop and have what 
Dr. Sue Johnson would call a hold me tight conversation where you have time to draw out and talk about all of your feelings. Sure. And there are times where you just have to be like, we don't have time to have an argument right now or have a heart-to-heart right now. We just have to get this done. We have to get this episode right now, CBCC episode 24, done. Done. (laughs) So to me, I would read Sea of Storms as kind of a what not to do where you're just create like in order to move the work forward you just create wall after wall after a wall and before you know it you're letting all of your coworkers see you and your loved ones snap each other snap at each other at work right so it is important to take that time to unwind to go over your emotions to reconnect and kind of start at an emotional blank slate. Yeah, I don't think I am anywhere different on relating Dr. Sue Johnson and Aquaman and Mira to my relationship than I was last episode. Open communication is key. Don't stuff your feelings. You really, you know, if you can't communicate with your partner in the moment about how you're feeling, you need to think on it and find a way to bring it up later in a positive and open um, environment. And hopefully you're in a relationship that you can do that. And if you're not, then maybe your relationship. You should be in a relationship. Yeah, or maybe yeah. open up the relationship and get another partner who can yeah, do that for you. Forget this monogamy nonsense. <laughs> um, for me, just to sum up Dr. Sue Johnson and what I'm going to take away from her book, Love Sense. Are you going to take anything away, Lisa? I'm going to take away that idea of that fMRI study that showed that all criticism hurts, Mm. no matter if it's couched, you know, like they tell you to do when you're doing um, editing or something like that when you're working with other people. Like if you have a criticism, you know, sandwich it in between two compliments. Try to say two positive things for every negative. Like no matter what, whenever you have to criticize someone else, it's going to hurt. So you have to go into soothing mode more or less immediately, and that's okay. It's just how the human brain works. I'm going to take that away. I also do like the idea of the hold me tight conversation of when you see yourself going into that spiral of where you and your partner are spiraling out of control in a conversation rather than coming back together in a conversation, going like, I have to turn on my hyper empathy and turn off my defensiveness and really lay what I need you to know out there for you to see plainly and clearly. Like, I think in some of these situations, instead of Arthur saying, don't say, you don't say I told you so, Mira, to me. Like he could instead say, I'm feeling a little defensive because I understand that you've already said this to me, but I just had to make my own judgment call and I hope you understand. I've been finding that since we've been doing these episodes that the idea of when a negative emotion erupts inside you, that you zero in on that feeling. Mm-hmm. Why am I really irritated right now with Lisa? You know, <laughs> w- what is it about that? Is it on her? Is it on me? If I feel like 
it is on her, then let me talk to her about that. And, and I think it's important that you detach yourself in some way to that negative emotion and yeah. study it. Yeah. I, give yourself time. Yeah. Th- I think that that's true. That when you have an emotional pop-up, you don't start getting down on yourself for having an emotional pop-up. Like, you know, sometimes I'll get irritated about something and then I get irritated about- Being irritated. Ba- about being irritated. Uh, yeah. And you know, I'm a thousand percent just like that. Right. So I think just being able to go like, that's an emotion. That's not me. Mm-hmm. And then going from there, I don't know. I think yeah, that's smart. I think that's super helpful. All right. I think the other thing about uh, Dr. Sue Johnson that you're going to take away is this idea that you've really decided that there's no one type of relationship for all people. Right. You know, and that's something that we're going to continue to explore as we read more and more relationship books and encounter more and more gurus that say they know the way. Usually when someone says they know the way, mm, there are several paths. We're all just throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. All right. Uh, Okay. So Lisa. Yes. That's the end of Arthur and Mira. Next week, what is happening, Lisa? What is happening? Ooh, the next thing that's going to happen is you're going to tell us what our next book is. No, Lisa. The next thing that's going to happen is we're celebrating our 10th anniversary. (laughs) You and I have been married for a decade, Lisa. That, yeah. We've always said to each other one of our cute things. Can I share this private cute thing? Uh, If if I say no, I'm just going to delete it. Oh, sounds good. So one of... uh, one of the things we started saying to each other early in our relationship is, oh. I feel like I love you decades. And now literally we do. We love each other decades. We love each other one decade. Yeah, one decade. On the 28th, we'll love each other decades because we'll enter into second decade. That's true. Yeah. So the 27th of June is Lisa and I's 10th anniversary. And we are celebrating by jumping in the car on Thursday early in the morning, and driving to Bangor, Maine from Virginia. Yes, we are road tripping. Because we're we're looking for Amnesty Bay. Where does Amnesty Bay actually exist in Maine? That's our goal. We have to visit a lighthouse. Yeah, we it do could have be to, Aquaman's yeah, lighthouse. We need that Instagram. <gasps> Maybe he left his trident unlocked. Uh, in all seriousness, we're actually going to Bangor, Maine because we're also big Stephen King nuts. And I took this trip many, many years ago. Lisa's never gone to Maine. We want to do that whole Stephen King house selfie like everybody else. We want to see, you know, the Paul Bunyan statue from it. Uh, yeah, we're, we're having a geek vacation on our 10th. and True Gullickson mode. That means next week's episode is going to be a final bonus episode of June to finish out the month. And we are going to focus on talking about our road trip. We're going to do it from the car. So expect that kind of car audio quality. Ambiance. Yeah. And we will be discussing... Uh, the adaptation of Creepshow, the Stephen King, George Romero collaboration, and Bernie Wrightson, the legend, the Swamp Thing legend, illustrated that movie in a gorgeous book. And you can get that book on Amazon now for 13 bucks. That's a crazy good deal. So good that we bought two copies of it. Yeah, so we're going to use that book as our framework to talk about our relationship, uh, our vacation, our anniversary, and uh, how awesome Bernie Wrightson is. Then we're going to return to our regularly scheduled program, and we are going to talk about 
Spider-Man and Mary Jane Watson. Yes. I've enjoyed our Aquaman conversation, but I am incredibly excited to dive into Spidey comics. Spider-Man's one of my all-time favorite books. He's one of my all-time favorite characters. Lisa and I bonded over Ultimate Spider-Man books early on in our dating life. We've talked about that on the podcast before, and it's just time. You know, Spider-Man Far From Home is hitting theaters on July 2nd, and we want to really dig into like the premier Marvel character right now, I'd say. Yeah. You know, maybe the Avengers and Iron Man still sway more public attention, but Spider-Man, he's my guy. And Spider-Man and Mary Jane Watson, iconic comic book couple. Yeah, like we could do Gwen Stacy and someday we may do Peter and Gwen Stacy, but for my money, I've always stand uh, um, Parker and Mary Jane. Is that how you use Stan, Lisa? Yes, yeah. Is it? Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, thank you. Though I think he could have an open relationship with both if they come up with a good policy. Could I also use the term shipping in this? Please okay. do. Yeah, yeah. I ship Mary Jane and Peter Parker. And we're going to start that conversation by discussing the 1989 comic book Parallel Lives, written by Jerry Conway and illustrated by Alex Seviuk. Uh, Lisa, who are we going to be using as our relationship guru for that month? Our love expert next month for Spider-Man and Mary Jane will be Dr. Alexander Avila, and the book is called Love Types. All one word, Love Types. Discover your romantic style and find your soulmate. And does this involve the Myers-Briggs test? Yes, I've been obsessed with the Myers-Briggs test since I first took it in high school. I identify very closely to my Myers-Briggs type identification. (laughs) I know you do. And just recently, I went down this wormhole of asking everybody in my family, (laughs) asking Brad, asking Brad's family, what their Myers-Briggs type and can Which my dad loves because he's also a maniac for this stuff. Right. And um, usually it's used to go like, oh, you're this type. You might want to go into this career or maybe you want to work in this fashion. But according to Dr. Alexander Avila, your Myers-Briggs type might also indicate what kind of lover you're going to be. All right. I'm excited. I, I'm just, I'm really excited to get to July. But first, we got to go to Creep Show and celebrate our union. That's right. 10 years. Whoa. Let's Let's go to a beach. Let's hold hands. Yeah, let's hold hands. Let's find a lighthouse. Uh, okay, Lisa. So where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter and Instagram. Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork, and you can email us, like I said at the top of the show, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. Please do so. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast, subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can give us the gift of five stars and a super flattering review on the iTunes. It helps us and our little show right here. We would love that. So until next time, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Okay, real quick, we're back. 
Aquaman issues 48 and 49, written by Kelly Sudakonik and illustrated by Victor Bogdanovic. Not Bogdanovich, but Bogdanovic. Uh, Brad, you really need to take some pronunciation classes. It's complicated. <laughs> so basic uh, gist, Aquaman has lost his memories. He's deep in the ocean and he runs into this elemental entity in the form of a massive shark, a.k.a. Mother Shark. Her job is to help the dead pass on to the afterlife. And issue 48 acts as in kind of like this It's a Wonderful Life tour through Arthur's past deeds. However, he realizes that Mother Shark is holding some info back. Who is this redheaded woman that refuses to leave his memory? She's the woman who killed you. What? 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 And that's not all. She's pregnant with your child. That news freaks Arthur right the frick out. <laughs> I think the concept of the mother shark is so interesting. Like, yeah, you can go back to life and you can go back to life with all of the information, but I'm just going to give you the information that's essential to who you are as a person. And according to mother shark, like not Mira, Mira. <laughs> Mira's not essential to you as a person. Meanwhile, he's going like, but you know, in my memory, there's this red haired woman and there's like there's this, this hole void in, in me. Yeah, yeah. And I love like the, the, the language that DeConnick is using to describe this pain that is occurring in Arthur. Yeah. Uh, you know, it makes me really appreciate them as a couple. Right. And but, so, and so mother shark sends her, him back to the surface. He has gotten the information out of her that Mira is, his the love of his life and his killer, but he chooses to go back to her anyway. I guess I forget exactly. Well, we don't. How that we happens. don't know. Like it, it hasn't ended. Like the, the the comic ends with the revelation that there's a little Arthur on the way or a little Mira on the way. And thanks to this mother shark, we get to see the entire moments transpire between Aquaman and Mira when she tells him. She's with child. Yeah. So apparently Mira at this point is king, uh, more or less. Queen. She's queen of Atlantis. And everybody believes that Aquaman is dead. Right. That all happened in Abnett's run. And Aquaman is like, I'm still processing my emotions. I don't necessarily want everybody to know that I'm alive. I'm just enjoying this time where I have no pressure and put on me. And he's super happy that she's queen, that he doesn't have to worry about being a king. And she says, well, look, the widowhood, they want me to marry you. Or to actually, they someone. want me to marry someone. And you're dead, so I can't. And he's like, that's no big deal. This is where you get on your knee and propose. And it's just so crushing because you just know this is not going to work. Well, because Mira makes the point of like, this direction that we're going is leading us to live separate lives, the lives where I'm a queen and where you are dead or living on the shore. And we, our relationship cannot afford to have separate lives. It's like, what are you talking about? But the moment she says, I'm pregnant, he shuts down. Yeah. He cannot deal with it. Well, he obviously has a lot of baggage connected to parenthood if you consider, like, his mother abandoned him yep. and then his father lied to him for his entire childhood. But what I love about the way this story is told is we get to see the thought bubble of what's going through Arthur's mind as he's going through the motions of saying the right thing. Uh -huh. So he's saying things like, I love you. I love our unborn child. But in his head, he's like going like, I don't want to be a dad. <laughs> I don't know how to 
be a it's dad. A really brutal issue, and I know that it has caused a lot of trauma for Aquaman fans. And I've had those conversations with them on our Twitter uh, feed. And I understand your pain and your aggravation, especially when Jeff Johns set up this whole proposal way back in the Rebirth one shot. So if you've been waiting for Mira and Aquaman to finally tie the knot, to years later get to this moment where it looks like Deconic is going to forever separate these two potentially. It's painful. And Arthur is like, great, this is beautiful news, but I could use a little space right now. (laughs) And she's like, no, you're, I'm like, I'm, I'm pregnant. You're, your seed is in me. It's blossoming, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, you don't get to go off and be on your own. He's like, yeah, but I really need to clear my head. And she's like, no. And so the issue ends with her going like, I am your queen. And if I tell you to stay, you're going to stay. And he goes like, it doesn't work like that. And then her eyes start to glow and then she explodes. Yeah, <laughs> rage, 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 rage. Super excited to see where this storyline goes. We're only two issues in. Talk about... Uh, Dr. Sue Johnson, time of transition. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, their relationship is in deep water. We skipped over that whole chapter regarding parenthood. You mean in Brene Brown's Daring Greatly. It wasn't in, the, in Sue Johnson? No. Oh, okay. Well, whatever. Yeah. We could come back to Aquaman, Mira, and Mother Shark with that Brene Brown chapter and explore parenthood if that child ever gets born, I guess. I guess that's still a question. I hope that the child lives through Mira's eyes glowing and then exploding. <laughs> well, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. The, the point being is, listeners, I understand you might have some frustration over what Kelly Sue DeConnick is doing to this relationship, but it is compelling, and DeConnick is such a great writer, and the concepts that she is doing with the old god stuff, I love it. Give and, it a chance. Let and, the arc finish. And Aquaman and Mira could use a little shakeup. Yes, for sure. Uh, for sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, that, I guess that's it. Um, oh, gosh, we've already done our outro. How do we end a stinger? Doobie doobie da 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 Ooh, a live recording. I, sh- I should have warmed up. No, you were great. I love oh, you. Thanks. Happy anniversary, Lisa. Happy anniversary, my love.